My name is Dino Dave Wetzel, and I do speak on creation, evolution, uh, science, and the Bible, do apologetics ministry. And my ministry kind of took a pretty big hit during COVID. Nobody wanted to hear a creation speaker, so I get pretty quiet. So part of what I did for those couple of years was to arrange some new presentations. And so what you folks are going to get today is one of the newer ones. We're going to talk about the Ice Age in this session, and we'll talk about dragons. And uh, are they real? Are they, are they historical? Or are they mythical? And we'll talk about that after our lunch break. Uh, but I just want to mention that I do have some resources that I take with me. Uh, this is Chronicles of Dinosauria. Some of you folks that have heard me before maybe have purchased a copy of this. But if you want uh, dinosaurs from a biblical perspective, here's a book on dinosaurs. talks about some of my personal research. But then just generally, how do dinosaurs fit in with the Bible? Uh, is there evidence that men and dinosaurs coexisted? That would be the book for you. Hardback book is $10. And then I have, again, this is a COVID project. This is new. Uh, the, the green one came out about a year ago, and this one just came out uh, this year. And so this is Dino Dave's Adventures. These are stories for kiddos, pretty much elementary. Now, the whole family would like it, but it's written at a very simple level, simple language. And each of the stories, each book has a dozen stories, each of the stories has an apologetics thrust. And so you'll see real pictures, you'll see real scientific facts, and it's kind of wrapped in a little bit of a story to kind of make it very accessible for the children. But some of the same evidences that I talk about. Now, sometimes we think, well, elementary, are they old enough to understand apologetics points? Well, the unfortunate thing is they're already getting the anti-biblical philosophy at that age in the public schools and from PBS and from uh, museums and national parks. And if they're old enough to love dinosaurs, they're going to hear, you know, millions and millions of years before man evolved, these creatures roamed the earth. So I truly believe it's important that we inoculate our young people against some of these things that are going to get thrown at them, some of the lies that will be thrown at them later on in their education, and get them some of these facts. And so they may not always remember all the details, but they'll say, okay, now wait a minute. I remember that crazy guy, Dino Dave, he was talking about that. And there are some good answers for some of these things that get thrown at them. So the softback books are $5. Now, both of these are just basically covering our cost. If you went online to Amazon, you'll find this out there for $16 instead of $10. And these will be $9.99 instead of $5. So just kind of covering our cost, but hoping to make these resources available to you. And uh, feel free to come up and avail yourself. I got a couple other books on the Ice Age. These are not for sale. But if you like what we're talking about and want some more information uh, from a creationist perspective by Jake Hebert or this one from my friend uh, Michael Ord, uh, there's some good resources, some of which I'm going to be referencing as we go along. So we're going to talk this morning about the Ice Age. And I had a number of people, you know, over the years have come to me and said, you need to do a talk on the Ice Age. How, what about global warming and how, where does the Ice Age fit in the Bible? Was there even an Ice Age? And so I got asked a lot of questions. And so COVID was my chance to kind of put some thoughts together. And I hope it's a blessing to you and encourages your faith. Now, what we see here in Genesis chapter 2, Eight in verse 22 is the first post-flood promise. Now, when I talk about a promise after the flood, what immediately comes to your mind? What's, what's, what, what bounces into your mind when I talk about a promise after the flood? Somebody help me out here. Yes. Very good. Gold star for you, young lady. The rainbow, right? But before God makes the promise of the rainbow, there's actually an earlier promise. And here it is in Genesis chapter 8, verse 22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now, why, why does God give this promise after the flood? I mean, would it not be expected that you'd have seasons continuing on? Why does God say this? By the way, you can, you can t I know this is a church service and stuff, but I'm kind of weird. If you're a visitor, you've got to come back next week. Pastor Fry, he's much better than me, and you have a normal worship service. But I, I'm, I'm Dino Dave. I kind of meander around a little bit, and I'm needing some interaction here to keep you guys all awake out there. So somebody help me out. Why does God make this post-flood promise? Okay, they're either thinking real hard, and I got them all stumped, or they'll want to sleep already. Yeah. Okay, changes to the environment. What had Noah just experienced? A flood. Guess what's going to happen the first time he sees the storm clouds rolling in and the thunder starting, right? Oh, no, it's happening again, right? And perhaps, 
It's a theory. I kind of think it's, it's got some validity. Perhaps there hadn't even been any rain in the pre-flood world. It had been really warm. And now all of a sudden you have some, there would have been some seasonality just because of the tilt of the earth. But now all of a sudden you've got major seasons introduced. And especially, notice some of these words here. Every word in God's uh, statement is important, right? God doesn't waste words. And here we see this cold and this winter in God's first post-flood promise. There had been no previous mention to these types of things, but here we see it, cold and winter. So I think there was a different seasonality to the pre-flood world, and now all of a sudden we have this cold. And so the Ice Age. Now, people think of the Ice Age, they think of Antarctica. Here's my family. We actually made a trip to Antarctica. You say, Dino, Dave, you are crazy. Why on earth would you take a family vacation, take your poor family, and go to Antarctica? Antarctica's cool. You get it? Okay, some of you guys will get that on the way home. All right, all right. Tough crowd here, Pastor. But some people, when they think of the Ice Age, they think of Antarctica, and they say, how could anybody survive through an Ice Age? You know, it's like trying to survive in Antarctica. Antarctica's tough. Antarctica, you know, in the height of summer, which is February, remember it's southern hemisphere, it'll get up to freezing. That's as warm as it gets, okay? You're talking about the biggest desert in the world. It never snows. It never rains. You're talking about the highest recorded winds on the face of the planet. You're talking about winds that are, you know, 150 miles an hour. You're talking about 100 and some below zero in the, in, the hearts, in the heart of winter down there. It's pretty barren. I mean, people can't survive. It's a black and white world. There's white snow and black rocks, and even the birds are black and white, right? The penguins, you see them kind of marching over the head of our family there. On average, between where you stand and the ground below, there's one mile of snow and ice. That's average. This place, it's more, and of course, along the coast, it's less. But one mile of snow and ice. Fun little fact, there's more fresh water frozen in the continent of Antarctica than all the Earth's rivers, lakes, streams combined. Pretty crazy. How did that all get there? What, what, I mean, how did that happen? Well, we got to talk about some of this stuff with the Ice Age. Now, some of you kids are saying, okay, now you're talking about Ice Age, Dino Dave. Are you talking about Manny and Diego and what's that, what's that little strange guy there, you know, uh, well, Sid and I don't remember these guys, but Scrat. Yeah, that's right, Scrat. Okay. Well, where do they fit in the genealogies, right? Some of you kids are wondering this right now. All right, we're not talking about that. But we're talking about the fact that God's word is true, and somewhere in Earth's history we have this thing that we call an ice age. And yes, there was an ice age. There's some good evidence for it. And uh, some people say, well, you know, we're du dubious of all these scientific. No, there's some good evidence. We'll talk about that. Uh, and, and give you some of the evidence that there really was an Ice Age. So here's our outline. Number one, I want to talk about the reality of the Ice Age. Number two, I want to talk about the cause of the Ice Age, what made it. Number three, I want to talk about the purpose of the Ice Age. Now, we don't always know why God does what he does, you know, maybe with an earthquake or climactic things. But we got a pretty good idea why God allowed an Ice Age. We'll talk about that. And finally, number four, we're going to talk about living in the Ice Age. What would it have been like to be on planet Earth during the Ice Age? Okay, so let's talk about the reality of the Ice Age, the reality of the Ice Age. Now, believe it or not, secular scientists did not want to believe in an Ice Age. As recently as the mid-1800s, they didn't want to believe it, even as the evidence was coming in. Why? Well, it seemed too catastrophic. Remember, in the 1800s, they're fighting against this idea of the flood, which has been the prevailing paradigm in science, creation and flood. The 1800s, you got evolution coming in, you got millions of years coming in, you've got uniformitarian thinking coming in, and all of a sudden this evidence for an ice age, it sounds like a massive global catastrophe. Well, we don't want that, that sounds too much like a flood. See? So what evidence helped change the paradigm to the point where right now, the Ice Age is accepted by pretty much all scientists. Well, the evidence is really four things, okay? 
And these are complicated little things, but I think you guys are a smart audience. You guys can follow me here on this. Let's all say these words. I'll say it, and let's all say it. That'll kind of help us all clue in on it. Ready? Glacial striations. Let's say it. Glacial striations. What on earth, I know, Dave, is a glacial striation? Well, this is basically grooves that are gouged or scratched out of solid rock as the glaciers are expanding and moving. There's rocks that they've trapped underneath the ice, sometimes boulders, and they're getting dragged along as the ice flows. Ice flows? Oh, yeah, ice flows like a river, but very slowly. But as that, though the weight pushes down and the glacier gets bigger, it kind of s flows downhill, see? And it's scraping the, the bedrock down at the bottom. Look at this. Look at this rock right here. I mean, what on earth did that? Was that King Kong's fingernails? <laughs> That's a glacial striation, see? And so when scientists see something like that, they say, okay, the glaciers were here at one point because that's the only thing we know that could do that. So glacial striations. Number two, glacial drumlins. Let's all say it. Glacial drumlins. What is a drumlin? Sounds like it belongs in somebody's band somewhere, right? <laughs> What's a glacial drumlin? Well, it's kind of these hills. Uh, they're elongated, teardrop-shaped hills of rock and sand and gravel that were kind of pulled along inside the snow and ice, carried by the glacier. And some of these are pretty long. They're about a mile long. Here's a, a little... Uh, diagram of it up top here, but in the bottom you actually see a glacial drumlin. You can see the base land over here, and what's this kind of tan thing here that's above the field? Well, this is mostly rock. That's why they didn't bother tilling up there and trying to plant, uh, but it was carried by the glacier at one point, and as the glacier melts back, it leaves this drumlin full of uh, kind of mixed rocks that were ground up and carried by the glacial called glacial till. So glacial striations and glacial drumlins. Number three is Glacial moraines. Let's all say it. Glacial moraines. What's a glacial moraine? Well, it's accumulations of dirt that was pushed on the front of a glacier, bulldozed, if you will. So, for example, here's a glacier. I believe this picture is Antarctica, uh, Alaska, actually. Uh, but you see the ice is melting back, and it's leaving this moraine where the, the glacier was kind of pushing this dirt in front of it, and now it's melting back. Remember, uh, glaciers, they don't ever travel backwards. They just kind of melt backwards, and then they'll leave behind this where the glacier stopped advancing. And finally, uh, so, okay, I just said that. Finally, we have glacial troughs. Glacial troughs. Let's all say it. Glacial troughs. Now, this is pretty easy, right? Glacial trough is just a U-shaped valley. So, glacier comes through, kind of pushes, bulldozes, and leaves behind this fairly large valley oftentimes, uh, and that's what's made a lot of our lakes in the northern hemisphere. Uh, it's got these major depressions, and then after the glacier retreats, it fills with water, and for example, the Finger Lakes in New York. Anybody ever been up to the Finger Lakes region? Pretty area up in uh, upstate New York, and if you go through uh, New Hampshire, Vermont, you kind of end up up there. It's kind of central New York area, Finger, Finger Lakes region. Lake Champlain, anybody been to Lake Champlain? One of my favorite lakes in all the world because potential of a monster in there. Uh, I'll talk about that some other day maybe. But here is how a, uh, uh, these, these uh, glacial lakes will form. Again, you see the ice age and these glaciers are pushing, gouging out these valleys, then they melt back and they start to fill with water and it begins to pool up and so here's how we have our Great Lakes. All these lakes run north to south because that's how the glaciers advanced. They, gla they came from the North Pole and they advanced southward, dug out these valleys. So if you look at a map, for example, here's the Finger Lakes, right? Why do they call them the Finger Lakes, Dino Dave? <laughs> they look like fingers, right? Uh, at least from the air they do. And, and there's this long skinny because a glacier came ripping down through that valley, and now that's all that's left is this water. It's filled in, and again, they're all running north to south. Because of the evidences we just discussed, we can pretty much map out where the glaciers stopped where those evidences, the moraines and the troughs and all that stuff stopped. And so the glaciers went down about as far as Kansas. So you think about all this area where we are now, right over here, is, uh, is uh, New England, so there's Massachusetts, and, and this would all be covered with ice. Living here would be like living in Antarctica. You couldn't plant anything. You couldn't, like, 
you know, shelter, you couldn't get firewood. It's just covered with ice. This whole area was covered with the ice age. But what about down in here? See, that's the part we have to understand. There were lots of areas that weren't covered with ice, particularly along the, the you know, the, 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 the tropical zones, the equator, and then also along the oceans where you get maybe some warmer breezes coming over. And so uh, the glaciers also on the south side and Antarctica would have been formed during the ice age. Look at Europe. All Europe's in the deep freezer, right? Or pretty much at least northern Europe. Uh, it would have been really difficult in, in northern Europe. So uh, we talked about the reality of the Ice Age. Let's talk about the cause of the Ice Age. This is kind of fun. As I began to study this out, the cause of the Ice Age is a major problem for our Darwinian friends. Secular scientists have struggled to explain how the Ice Age came about. Even more puzzling is how it came to an end. Many believe in five ice ages, which only compounds the problem. This is a major difficulty. And, and, and I'm going to explain why here in, in just a minute. Uh, but the best theory they have, I'm going to give this to you. This is their best explanation they've got. If you go to a secular um, museum, maybe, and they have an exhibit on the Ice Age, or you, you read a textbook, they'll talk about the Milinkovitch cycle. So what's the Milinkovitch cycle? Well, as the Earth orbits around the sun, of course, the Earth has a tilt, right, which gives our seasons, but then also it has a slight wobble, okay, where every 26,000 years it goes through what we call a precession. You got a top that's spinning and you bump it, it'll keep spinning, but maybe have a little bit of a wobble to it. That's the way our Earth is, okay? And so you're talking very slight differences in the angle of the tilt. And yet that's the best they've got to explain the Ice Age. Now this, my friends, will help you understand something else. Why are secular scientists so alarmed about the possibility that we might have a tiny bit of climate change going on? Oh, the Earth is, over the last hundred years, has warmed up one degree. It's like, well, what's the big deal? Well, they believe this is very precarious. Why do they believe it's so precarious? Because they, th they, they think this is what caused the Ice Age, was a slight change in that tilt. That's the best example they got. That's not what caused the Ice Age. See, that's important. The cause of the Ice Age... It's right now the earth has ways of balancing itself. So, for example, if it gets um, particularly warm in a particular area and starts getting really hot and it starts getting kind of desert-like, all of a sudden the surrounding waters, the ocean near there, will get a lot more evaporation. And guess what's going to happen? That humidity is going to come over. It's going to rain. And so the earth has ways of correcting right now and keeping itself in balance. So this idea of a slow and gradual oncoming of the Ice Age doesn't work because over time it may swing this way a little bit, but then it's going to swing back. So over time, the Earth kind of balances itself. And here's the even bigger challenge. If an Ice Age did get started, okay, let's just say that somehow, even though they can't explain it, there was an Ice Age that got started, that ice and snow is going to bounce more sunlight back out to space and keep less warmth here. And so it's going to get colder. You get more ice and snow. It's going to bounce even more out to space. And it's just going to, the whole earth is going to turn into a big snowball and there'll be no escape from it. You're never going to get out of the ice age, right? Because you just keep bouncing more and more of that heat and that light up to space. And so you'll have snowball earth. So this is a big problem. How did they come and how did they go? And uh, there's a lot of different books that kind of admit it's a problem. For example, here is uh, the Glacial Lake Missoula book, and uh, it says on page 180, although theories abound, no one really knows what causes ice ages. Well, maybe they're looking in the wrong place. Here is a U.S. News and World Report. Secular science has great difficulty explaining an ice age. We've been chewing on this problem for 30 or 40 years. It's a killer. It's embarrassing. Here's uh, one more quote for you, uh, 2008. Perhaps the longest standing puzzle in Earth sciences is what caused the northern hemisphere ice sheets to come and go. 
they haven't got a good answer for this. It's a big problem. If you don't want to believe in the flood and you don't want to believe in God's word, this is a difficulty. But can I tell you, my friends, when we just believe the word of God, it's like the key that unlocks these secrets. Why? Because it's truth. It's God's truth. We have the authority of Scripture. Young people, I'm looking at some young people here today. You're going to decide where you're going to plant your feet on. What's going to be the authority in your life? You say, well, I believe in science. Science is what given us cell phones, and science is what put people on the moon, and science is what gives me all this lifestyle that I've got today, and science has got to be true, right? Question, has science changed in the last hundred years? Oh, my goodness, Yes. You're going to put your feet on that foundation. That foundation is going to give way underneath you. It's going to change. It's going to be more. It's just theories of man. Now, it works sometimes, and that's great. Uh, sometimes it doesn't work so well. <laughs> but question, has God's word changed in the last 100 years? No, that's a foundation you can plant your feet upon, and it is true. You can take it to the bank. The Bible is more up-to-date than tomorrow's Google headlines. It's God's word. So what's the real cause of the Ice Age? Biblically, we're given some pretty good clues on this. The Genesis flood in the Bible elegantly explains the global Ice Age. In fact, it provides the exact conditions needed for a single short-term Ice Age. What do you mean by short-term? Well, it lasts about 700 years. 500 years to build up after the flood and about 200 years to go off. Uh, so it was somewhere around the 2350 to 1650 B.C., Okay, time frame. And it was caused by two things. Really simple, really basic. Two things caused the Ice Age. Number one, warm oceans. Warm oceans. Now you may be thinking, wait a minute, whoa, 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 whoa. Warm oceans cause an Ice Age? What you have to realize is that the ice came from lots of snow building up on the continents. Now question, think with me here for a minute. Do you typically get snow happening when it's kind of cold or when it's wicked cold? Wicked cold? How many saying wicked cold? A few of you guys. How many saying kind of cold? Like just trying to freeze Now I've got a lot more people saying kind of cold. Why? Why are you guys saying kind of cold? Okay, yeah, moisture. Really, really cold air can't hold moisture. That's why Antarctica is a desert. So you put the earth in complete deep freezer, you're not going to get any snow. See, it's kind of more when it's closer to freezing. You know, and maybe somewhere between freezing and zero. But you get sub-zero, just, there's no humidity in the air. Too snow, see. And so you need to have warm oceans to make lots of humidity come out. And then number two, you've got to have cold continents. Well, the warm oceans would have been caused by the flood. You had all these fountains of the Great Deep breaking apart. We believe there was one continent called Pangaea got split apart by the fountains of the Great Deep. And all this lava that's coming out, all this new ocean floor was very warm. So the, 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 the oceans would have been very warm, like tropical, like 80 degrees over the whole world. Now, what's that going to do? We call that um, uh, uh, El Nino. I'm pretty sure. La Nina? I think it's El Nino, where they, we get these really warm oceans for a little bit and lots, and it just get, we get tons of rain and snow. They just got that out in California this year, and they're happy because they've had drought because of the warm oceans. And so lots of humidity means lots of clouds coming in over the continents, but then you need to also have fairly cold continents. Now, how do you get that? How do you get cold continents and warm oceans? That's the problem. That's what secular science can't explain. But see, you got the flood, this catastrophe that ripped open planet Earth, and you got all these volcanoes still going off. They don't get turned off just because the flood's done. They're still going. Well, what are these volcanoes doing? They're spewing all this clouds and dust of ash up in the air. These stratovolcanoes, I'm not talking the little oozily goozily kind like it's happening right now in Hawaii. I'm talking Mount St. Helens kind. They're putting all this dust and ash up into the atmosphere, and that's blocking the sun. So you got warm oceans, lots of humidity coming up over the continents. The sun's not warming the continents much because it's getting blocked by these ash and very cold, lots of snow. That's the ticket. Both of those will create an ice age. 
Just really simply does it. Very, very predictable. Okay, so stratovolcanoes. And this is, there's good evidence of this. We have some good evidence of this. But this is the mixture here. The warm oceans coming up, blocking that sunlight, lots of snow. Snow just builds up, compacts into ice. Ice turns into glaciers. The glaciers spread. They start with the north and the south, and they go down towards the equator. Okay, here's some evidence. Number one, Mount Tambora. Mount Tambora. This one blew its top in 1815. It was known as the year without a summer. Why? Because of all that ash and dust in the air. Krakatoa, 1883. Global average temperatures dropped by 1.2 degrees centigrade. Global temperatures dropped because of one volcano. Mount Pinatubo in 1991, global temperatures dropped by a half a degree Celsius. That doesn't sound like much, but remember, climate change, global warming is one degree over like the last couple hundred years. And they're all alarmed about it. So this was dramatic. This was dramatic. Um, how many of you guys remember Mount St. Helens? Most of you guys do, 1980, right? Mount St. Helens blew its top. And by the way, we were pretty amazed at Mount St. Helens, but there's, there's the ash cloud right there. That's the fallout of Mount St. Helens uh, going across multiple states. It was a big deal. But in the rocks, in the fossil record, we have this maxima ash layer. We have the Yellowstone one in light blue, the green one, and look at this dark blue one. We had some much bigger ones in the past, right in that same area. When? Probably around post-flood. Because what happened during the flood, you know, it's washing around. We wouldn't have the ash layer down. So this is post-flood. It's still going on for some years, some centuries after the flood. But Mount St. Helens is a big one, and that's a, a stratovolcano, and, and we remember that one. So you have this residual volcanism after the flood. You have, you know, different ones spewing out and spikes are going off. And, of course, that's maintaining those aerosols, allowing it to stay cold over the continents. Eventually, uh, over the course of 500 years, these volcanoes, they stop, you know, and the ashes start to come down. And then it takes about 200 years for the ice to melt back. So it's about a 700-year ice age. Does that make sense? Okay, that's post-flood, about 700 years. And that's what causes the Ice Age to come and the Ice Age to go. Now, there's been 25 ash bands, an estimated 2,000 dust bands preserved in the bird ice cores. It's where they drill down into Arctic ice cores and Antarctic ice cores. They bring them up and they kind of look at them. And this testifies to much more extensive fallout of volcanic ash in Antarctica during the latter part of the Wisconsin. And they think this is millions of years ago, but they, they're surprised with all this ash. But we would say, no, that happened post-flood and exactly fits the biblical model. The volcanic aerosols block the sun, cool the continents, layers of snow build up, compact the ice. Now, these harsh conditions contribute to some extinctions, especially large reptiles like my friends, the dinosaurs. You're a large reptile, okay, snow and ice is not your friend. Has anybody seen crocodiles in the ponds up here recently? No. Doesn't happen, right? Now, this, some could have survived still along the equator, again, along the, uh, along the ocean edges there, but uh, a lot of these creatures would have gone extinct at this period during the Ice Age. It would have been really difficult for them. Uh, the tropics would have remained free of ice. By the way, the Middle East, where the Bible's written, uh, in Africa, right now that's a desert. Back then, it would have been really well watered. Um, even up north, some animals could survive right along the edge of the glacier. Some of them are really fuzzy. We're talking about fellows like my buddy here. Who knows what this is? Woolly mammoth, right? And so others could survive along the coastline where the warm ocean breezes. Remember, you've got 80-degree oceans, so it keeps the land free of ice in the summer and constant rains, uh, plentiful vegetation along the coastlines. Here is a woolly rhinoceros. You guys heard of a woolly rhinoceros? This woolly rhinoceros, herds of camels and horses roamed in, uh, roamed in North America. The woolly rhino lived in Europe. Today, you don't have woolly rhinoceroses in Europe. Okay? But back in the Ice Age, this was a common, and we see their fossils. This was a common creature. And then look at this, the megatherium, this giant ground sloth. They lived in caves. They grew as big as a grizzly bear. But that was a sloth that lived right here in North America during the Ice Age. So woolly rhinoceroses. Woolly sloths, and then the most famous Ice Age creature of all, the woolly mammoth, right? Manny the mammoth. 
Um, yeah, everybody loves them. I have one woolly mammoth tooth here. Come check this out afterwards. This is a real fossil. Please get, don't pick it up. You can touch it, but this is a real fossil. It's turned to rock. That's the chewing surface. This is one tooth. I bought this in Siberia and had it shipped to me. Now, I'm going to show you something else, and this is really fragile, so please, you can look at it, pick, you can touch it, don't pick it up, but this is a real woolly mammoth tusk. Now, that is a baby woolly mammoth tusk. Tiny, tiny little fellow. A real one would be as long as one of these pews. Yeah, so I'm going to set this up here. Please, very careful with these fossils. They are real fossils. These are uh, uh, fossilized, turned to rock. But they find these woolly mammoths, especially in Siberia, by the hundreds of them. And they're so well preserved, the dogs will still eat the meat. You can see the skin on them, and you see that, that's, a, that's a baby one. You can see the tusks on them. And they're frozen there in Siberia. These fossils of a time when the, 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 the global temperatures was, were just very different. Uh, they could never survive. An elephant species could never survive today in Siberia. Um, okay, so let's move beyond the reality and the cause. Let's talk about the purpose of the Ice Age. Wh why would God do this? Why would God put the earth in the refrigerator? What's the point of having an Ice Age? Well, there's a challenge in the post-flood world. There's a difficulty. God had preserved the creatures in the ark. The ark lands on Mount Ararat. All the animals are coming off, but then how do you get them back to where they were pre-flood? I mean, continents have moved apart and stuff like this. And they got a ways to go. And so how do you disperse animals to islands, places like Australia, Madagascar, and all these different places like that? Well, sometimes animals can float on uh, rafts. By that I mean like just a bunches of logs that are all kind of conglomerated together, a natural raft, and they're rafted. So, for example, you might have an island that doesn't have any lizards and then you have a big storm that blows a bunch of trees or they come down, a bunch of trees come down the river and some lizards happen to be on there. Next thing you know, you got a bunch of lizards on this island. How'd they get there? Well, they got rafted there, okay? And so that can explain some of it, but are you going to raft woolly mammoths around? Uh, probably not, you know? Small mammals maybe and lizards? Yeah, no problem. Uh, but how do you get the larger animals to, you know, how do elephants get to Africa? How do kangaroos get to Australia? Okay, so... The Ice Age would have resulted in a 200-plus foot drop in ocean levels. Think about that, 200-foot drop, because all this snow and ice is now on the continents, at least temporarily. This allows animals to be able to get places. So, for example, if, if this were uh, Florida over here and this was Cuba, you see how when the water goes down, you can walk out and maybe you wade through a little bit of water there and you can get to the island, right? And this would have been the original drop-off right there, that, that continental shelf. And so then it's filled up since, and then we have the water levels have come up a lot. So the result of the lower oceans would have been land bridges, allowing animals to walk across to what are now islands and across the Bering Strait. The inland glaciers would have forced animals to move along the coast, because remember, it's, it's, it's ice, it's in, inland, but along the coast it's warm, so they're kind of going the fastest way along the coast to get to these far-off places, facilitating rapid dispersal from Ararat. Now, there's some urgency to this, right? you got 700 years, and then the Ice Age is done. And so God says, go, replenish the earth. Of course, the animals are obeying God, and they're going, did the people obey God? No. What did the people do? They, they built the big tower. We're not, we're not going to disperse. No, no, no. So this is a migration map that you'll see in textbooks. Notice they're coming across the Beringia and down into North America. Absolutely what we would expect. Biblically, this fits perfectly with the creation model. This is a, a, a typical migration map. But people instead build the Tower of Babel. And that was going to prevent people from reaching distant lands. They would miss the opportunity provided by the Ice Age. Once the ice melted, those land bridges would be gone. And so there was some urgency to God's command. And God forces them by changing their language and forces them to spread out, to disperse, 
And naturally, what are they going to do? They're going to follow the animal migrations. They're hunter-gatherers. They're going to follow those same routes that the animals are following, uh, taking down things like woolly mammoths and deer and stuff like this. And so they're going to do that same route. Now, if you look in a textbook on human migration, this is what you'll see. Now, just for a minute, ignore those dates, like 40,000 years and 50,000 years and 60,000 years. Besides the dates, this is really interesting. Follow back, where does the, this human migration start? Where is the start point? Look carefully at that. Where is the start point in this uh, archaeological textbook on human migration? Asia, be more specific. Middle East, yeah. Nope, not Africa. Africa's down here, and it's coming from Turkey. Even more specific. Ararat. Hello. <laughs> you just believe your Bible. You'd already be there. I tell you, the Bible is more up to date than tomorrow's Google headlines, right? We don't have to read the textbook on human migration to know this. But that's what they figure out. So how do they know that? Well, they see stone tools and the civilizations kind of move out and they start to see copper tools and eventually they begin to see some iron tools. And so this shows advances. Okay, the, the structures are more primitive then they're getting a little bit more advanced. Civilization comes out uh, as, as they migrate. Technology advances. So this is, this is kind of fascinating and, 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 and perfectly works out with the Bible. Okay, let's have a little bit of fun here. Let's hit our last point. What would it be like to live through an ice age? No, thanks. You're ready to live through an ice age. I don't need any more of this, Dino Dave. Uh, we have some glimpses, some little clues that are kind of interesting that we, can, that we can jump on here and help us to understand. I want to talk about the book of Job. I want to talk about the Neanderthals. And I want to wrap it up with Itzy, the Iceman. Itzy, the Iceman. Okay. Book of Job. We believe Job is the oldest book in the Bible. I might say, well, whoa, Dino Dave, what about Genesis? Doesn't that talk about creation? Yes. But Genesis is written by? Not Joseph. Moses. Yes, yes. Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, right? And you got Job somewhere between Noah and Abraham. I think it probably is this guy in Genesis 10. It says an Ophir and Havilah and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. I think that's probably the Job of the Bible. Don't know for sure, but probably. And so he's somewhere between Noah, who gets off the ark, and Abraham. Now Abraham begets Isaac, who begets Jacob, who gets, you know, the 12 sons of the tri tribe, the sons of Israel. And eventually, in the tribe of Levi, you get Moses, who writes Genesis. So he's way down there after Job. So Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible. And so as we look at Job, it's probably right about the time of the Ice Age. He's six generations down from Noah. And uh, this would be when we would say the Ice Age was on planet Earth. Now follow me, huh? There are more references to cold, snow, ice, hail, and frost in Job than any other book of the Bible. A book's vocabulary can be forensic evidence regarding life conditions and shared experiences of the time. If I am in an Eskimo, I'm, I'm an Inuit, and I'm living up there, and I've never been outside of Alaska, and I'm going to write a book about, you know, what life was like over the last few years, am I going to say, well, we had this really warm day. It was as hot as the Sahara. Am I going to say something like that? Why not? I've never been to the Sahara. I don't know anything about it, right? I don't know anything about deserts. Conversely, if I'm in Africa and I'm only a tribal person, I always lived in Africa, and I, I, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to say, man, we had this really cold morning. Man, it was cold as a glacier in the Antarctic. I'd never say something like that because I, I, I haven't experienced that, right? And so here we have all these rep Let me give you some examples. Here is uh, Job 37. From the chamber of the south comes the whirlwind and the cold from the scattering winds of the north. By the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen. Here's a guy who knows a little about what it's like. Sounds like he lived in New England in February. Uh, Job 38, 22, hast thou entered into the treasures of the snow, or hast thou seen the treasures of the hail? One more. Uh, from whose womb comes the ice and the frost of heaven who gives it birth? The waters harden like stone, and the surface of the deep 
is frozen. Okay, let's talk about the Neanderthals. Neanderthals. Neanderthals is an interesting word. Where do we get that word from? It comes from a guy by the name of Joachim Neander. Good German name. Here's Joachim. And he was living in a beautiful valley area in Germany. And he just loved to go down in the valley where there was a stream and there's some beautiful rock formations and a meadow down there. And, and he just would give God the glory and he'd sing praise. He's a bit of a poet. And he'd write these songs and he'd sing down there. And pretty soon he got a bit of a following. And some people would go down and hear him just kind of sing. And, and he'd preach to him a little bit. So he's kind of a preacher. And in fact, one of his songs we still sing today. Joachim Neander, you can look it up in your songbook, wrote this song, Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of Creation. He's a creationist. And he goes down to this valley and he sings these beautiful songs to God. Now, in German, the word for valley is the word tal, T-A-L, or thal. And so Neanderthal is merely saying Neander's Valley. It was named after him. And so here you have Neanderthal, Neanderthal. Years later, they were mining in that area, and they, they came across some remains. Now look at this, bits of this poor lost dude, and tell me, in your opinion, is that a pretty complete skeleton or just some tiny bits and pieces? Bits and pieces, right? Evolutionists like bits and pieces because you can invent a lot of stories about it, right? And they took these tiny bits and pieces where it's hard to even tell what this poor dude is. It's kind of part of his skull and a few miscellaneous itty-bitty bones. And they drew this. This is 1908, the original Neanderthal caveman. You wonder, how do we get the idea of a caveman? Well, that's because of the caves in the Neander Valley and that picture. Very famous, went all around the world. Oh, they've discovered the caveman. Evidence for evolution. Darwin's theory is right. Well, they just got bits and pieces. They're just telling a bunch of stories about a hairy guy with a club. Ooh, go kill the woolly mammoth, right? Just telling stories. A guy by the name of Jack Quoza lived in New Jersey, a friend of mine, and he uh, has since passed away, but he got to go as a, as, as a, uh, um, a forensic uh, scientist, a biologist, he got to go over and study the original Neanderthal skeletons, and he actually went in the museums, and he did some very scientific measurements and he came up with some astounding information, wrote it in his book. But part of what he saw in these caves was makeup pigments, flute-like reed instruments, turquoise, pink, flax, fiber clothing, drugs including aspirin and antibiotics. Are these a bunch of bozos, barely developing gorillas? Super glues, leather tools, and most amazing of all, based on his analysis and his teeth measurements, they were over 200 years old when they died. Question, does anybody know anybody that's lived to 200 years? How about this? Do you know a place in the Bible where people are living to 200 years? Like when? Who knows? Well, pre-flood, they're living 900 years. You're close. When are they living 200 years? Right after the flood. Abram's about 175, so this would be a good bit even after Shem, Ham, and Japheth, about the time of Job. It fits. Go read up on Job's life sometime. Job lives about a couple hundred years. Uh, the Bible actually talks about how many years he lived after all, you know, all his, his trials. And so here's a Neanderthal cave. i got to keep moving along here. Why are they living in caves? Because they're a bunch of bozos? No, it's because it's a safe place to live. Uh, but they have this artwork. Now, I couldn't do a charcoal art of a horse like that. I mean, these guys are very, very intelligent. Look at the ox and the ponies. Uh, so, uh, by the way, they've done analysis of their teeth and stuff, and they had the salad. They're eating mammoth meats. And so they're living in the caves for protection because the world is still dangerous. There's earthquakes. There's volcanoes going off. The mudslides, stuff is still slopping around. And goodness, you got Diego out there wanting to eat you up. You don't want to be out there. You want to be in a safe place like a cave. 
So they're not brutes. They just happen to be living in caves. Job talks about people in his day that live in caves. Job chapter 30 and verse 6. In fact, the Bible talks about some people that live in caves. Uh, Lot lived in a cave with his daughters, and David did, right? So this is today's exhibit of Neanderthal man in the Smithsonian Museum. They had to change their mind just a little bit, didn't they? You could put that guy in a three-piece suit, and he could walk down Wall Street, nobody even raise an eyeball. All right, let me wrap it up here with Itzy, the Iceman. Who is Itzy, the Iceman? Well, Itzy, the Iceman, is a dude that was found way up in the Alps. Do you see these people down here? Look like ants down there. Okay, 10,000 foot up this trail, there's a glacier. And the hikers were up there, and they happened to meander a little bit off the trail, and they say, oh, look down there. There's a guy. He looks like he's dead. So they go down to check him out. And they see this dude is frozen into the glacier. Oh, my. This guy's been here a while. And so they call the Italian version of 911. They come up there and they try to get some pickaxes, but they don't want to hurt this corpse. And so they eventually bring up some tents and they melt around him. And they manage to get out Itzy, who's named after the mountain, this mummy. What's a mummy? Is it a lady that had children? No. A mummy is something that's a preserved body, not just the skeleton, just the bones, but the whole body is preserved. We got some mummies. We got some mummies in uh, Egypt, right? Uh, we got some mummies in South America, but these guys are in bad shape. You touch them and they crumble. They're really bad shape. This guy is amazingly preserved. I mean, you could still move his arms and stuff. He's like rubbery because he's been frozen in this glacier and preserved. It's amazing. The world's oldest mummy. And then they find his backpack and all his goodies. A lot of different things are recovered. And they did this massive analysis on this guy. He's given a CT scan, x-ray, forensic analysis. And one of the questions they try to figure out is, how did he die? And they think, well, maybe it was exposure. Maybe he got up in the glacier and he just died and got frozen into the glacier. But this guy is so well prepared. I mean, he's got this beautiful warm coat and all this stuff. And, and so they, they analyzed him, but he actually got him on display. And I was able to go this last year to Italy, to South Tyrol, and see, there I am, looking at Utsi, the Iceman. And they bring him out once a month. They mist him down so he doesn't get too dry. And they put him back in the cooler again. But they get all this analysis because they wanted to find out what was it like to live way back then in the Ice Age, see? And kind of interesting, some of the things that they learned. And here's Utsi, you know, his hands kind of... Stuck out like that. Uh, but they learned so much about this guy, they actually they did a recreation of him, and they, they did a movie on his life. Now, I'm not saying it's a good movie. I haven't seen the movie. I don't know. But I'm just saying that that's how much they've studied him. And they wanted to figure out how he died. And, and the guys that were analyzing the coat found a, 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 a rip, like, under the left shoulder blade. And so they told the guys that were doing the x-ray, hey, can you zoom in on the left scapula? We want to see it. And so the guy, they bring the x-ray, they zoom in. And lo and behold, he's got a stone arrowhead under his left shoulder blade. He got shot from behind, ambushed, probably by some people that knew him. Because if this had happened in battle, you would never leave a coat made out of fur. You would never leave a Swiss army knife. You would never leave a copper axe. These things are worth a fortune. His bows, his arrows. I mean, you'd never leave this stuff, right? You'd spoil them, right? You take all the goodies and you leave the body. That, but it's all there still, see? And it's cool because we get to get this little insight into the technology. And the scientists were amazed at the level of technology. He's got uh, certain uh, vegetables in his, his backpack. He's got all these arrows with fletching with the actual feathers to make them fly straight. He's using yew wood for his bow, which is the same wood they used in England all the way thousands of years later in, in the 1400s, time of Robin Hood, because the yew wood's got a good bounce to it. So these guys had crazy technology. He's got this, uh, this, this uh, copper ax for chopping down trees and stuff. And all this stuff that they managed to recover from Etsy helped us see what it was like to live in the Ice Age. See, people in Europe are no longer Neanderthals in the caves. Now they're coming out and they've got mining going on. They're doing all this stuff, even though they're living up against the edge of the ice. 
I was fascinated by his shoes. These are so cool. These shoes have like sinews of animals forming a netting and then grasses for insulation weaved in them. They've got leather uppers that are deerskin and leather lowers that are bearskin and all stitched together. These are cool shoes. I'm waiting for LL Bean to come out. So I'm going to buy it, man. This stuff is great. So European people live quite comfortably near the coast, even right up against the glacier, during the time of the Ice Age. Okay, in summary, Ice Age was real, backed up by observable scientific evidence. Number two, the Ice Age was caused by the after effects of the Genesis Flood, perfectly explains it. Number three, the Ice Age was necessary for post-flood dispersal of men and animals. Number four, the Ice Age fits well with biblical history. Psalm 147, verse 17 says this, He casts forth his ice like morsels. Who can stand before his cold? We think of God as a fire, and God is a fire. But when God wants to make things cold, my friend, he can make things cold. God is in control of the cold, just like he's in charge of the hot. And in fact, as part of the judgment in the end times, the Bible says, there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven. Now watch this. Every stone, it's a hailstone, about the weight of a talent. That is 100 pounds. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. Yeah, I would say it's exceeding great. Can you imagine a 100-pound ball of ice falling out of the sky? Mr. Sparkman, can you imagine that hitting you in the head? No, actually, you would never think anything else. I mean, you'd be done, right? It's like a bowling ball. That's taking out trees. That's coming straight through buildings, right? God is in control of the elements. God is in control of the ice and the snow. He's got everything in his powerful grasp. Does he have control of your life? Have you given your life to God? I hope you have. If you haven't, the most important thing we could do today would be to sit down with you and explain from the Bible how you can have a relationship with Almighty God, how you can know for sure that you're going to heaven when you die, would love to do that. Come talk to me or pastor afterwards. Let me close in prayer. Thank you, God, for the wonder of your word. Lord, we look at the best information that modern science has to afford, and it's not perfect. It'll probably change, but it fits really, really well with just the plain teachings of the Bible. Lord, I pray that would strengthen our faith in your word. God, we don't need science to prove the Bible. We, as we talked about in Sunday school, we have seen the power of God's word in our lives. We have seen the power to transform lives. We have seen how it hits us right where we live, right in our heart. But Father, it is gratifying to see how your word fits well with the scientific facts, not the theories, but the facts, and how well it fits with Fulfilled prophecy, Lord, this gives us confidence that your word is also true when it talks about the coming judgment. And God, I pray in the hearing of my voice, if there's one person today, maybe here in the service, maybe out on the live stream, that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, they've never yet made their peace with God. They don't have a relationship with the God that holds their very lives in the palm of his hand. Lord, I pray today they would Reach out to somebody that can help them understand. They would read your word and come to understand the good news of the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins and we can be forgiven. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.